0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Yes, Uh, one other, uh, those tips are incredible. One other Lectio tip that I think definitely works for me, and I think in our 21st century generation, it's less addition, it's more subtraction, but I don't let my phone anywhere near me when I'm doing the Lectio. I find, uh, I'm the guy who goes for water, but I'm also the guy that suddenly, I just need to check a million things on the internet about nothing. Um, So I keep my phone at a distance, a safe distance when I do Lectio. And if you're here and you're like, what is Lectio, what is this? Uh, It's a spiritual practice that we started as a community back in January uh, that gets us engaged with reading the Bible, um, reflecting on it, listening to God, writing notes, writing prayers. So if you're interested in like, hey, how can I get one of those? There's a what's next table outside in the lobby. Go see uh, the beautiful smiling faces of our welcome team after service, and uh, we'll figure out a way to, to help you get one of those. Cool, well welcome again to Hope Brooklyn, everyone. Uh, my name is Russ, I'm one of the pastors here, and as Anna and Nazi said, we are a community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey there's room at the table. We have just recently kicked off a series that we are calling The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus, yeah, bump, bump, bump. Uh, that was, wait, that's Law and Order, right? No, <laughs> bump, bump, I don't know, whatever. I never watched Law and Order. Um, politics of Jesus. And, and it's easy when we talk about politics to abstract it, to think on it in high levels. Politics is uh, voting in a democratic election. It's a system of governance, and for sure it is that. But what we're really trying to get at is when we talk about politics, all we're talking about is how we live. It's a shared system, a shared vision for how we organize ourselves as a community, the the good, the ideal that we are working toward. So when we are asking, what are the politics of Jesus? We're asking, what does he care about? What does he advocate for? What is he focusing us to pursue? Two weeks ago, we opened the series and we talked about the sin of Jeroboam, which I won't go back over who this guy Jeroboam was, but essentially the sin of Jeroboam is this. Anytime God is used as a means to another political end, and that can be done on the political right or the political left. When we use God as a means to further another nation state's And we are committing the sin of Jeroboam. So when we talk about Jesus' politics, it's important that we understand at the outset, we are talking about it independently of how it might affect America. That's our nation state that we live in. Now, to be sure, if we're following Jesus correctly, it will influence where we live. But what Jesus is calling us to is independent of, of, his goal is not to change America. His goal is, as one scholar puts it, for the people of God, they are called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. We are called to be, for anyone in this room who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And if you're not, that's great. You are welcome here and you get a ringside seat of exactly what he's inviting us into. But the people of God are called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. So that's first. Secondly, then we said, okay, well, what does that mean? What are Jesus's politics? And we said, Jesus's politics are the politics of Jubilee, Jubilee. It's an ancient practice in the people of Israel, but here's in short how it worked. Every 50th year, every 50th year, 5-0, on the Day of Atonement, which was a day uh, in the people of Israel where all spiritual debts that we owed God, all wrongdoing, whether what we had done or what we had thought in our hearts or what we had left undone, um, how we had treated one another, Um, worship we had not given God, all the the debts that we had racked up throughout the year. Every year on a single day, they were just canceled, canceled. The priests uh, offered the gift to God and your spiritual debts were wiped out like that. That happened annually. But every 50th year, not only did that happen where our spiritual debts were canceled, but also it was proclaimed a year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee took that that cancellation of spiritual debts out into the externals. And what it meant was all social and economic debts were canceled as well. And all structures of power reset. So over the course of 50 years, a lot of business happens, right? A lot of life happens. A lot of rain cycles come and go and products. And so uh, Israelites would sell land, buy and sell land Someone fall into tough times, some would have a really good uh, year, a really good yield. But every 50th year on the year of Jubilee, when it was proclaimed, all land that you sold went back to you. If you had fallen on hard times and become a servant in another Israelite house, you were immediately freed and given your land back. The game was reset. The game was reset. And we said, because in Luke chapter four, when Jesus starts his ministry, he quotes Uh, a section of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, which sort of gets at the year of Jubilee. So Jesus's politics are the politics of Jubilee. Then last year, or last year, (laughs) last week we said, before Jubilee can happen out there, it has to happen in here. We have to encounter God in our heart of hearts, say there is no shame that is too thick, there's no story that the world tells about you, there's no story you tell about yourself which will keep my love from getting to you. We just sang it. The love of God is absolutely unstoppable. And he gets to us at the core and he says, I see you, I love you, do you love me? And out of that relationship, which is also really unique, really unique about the, the, the story of Jesus, a lot of religions just sort of do the first part where we say, uh, yes, God, I love you, right? And we do the things, we, we do uh, spiritual practices or whatever to try to earn that love or live into that love. But the story of Jesus is a relationship with God. So he's not just saying, I love you, but he's also asking you in return, do you love me? And when we can say yes to that, we enter into relationship. Jubilee starts to happen. So we said before Jubilee can happen out there, it has to happen in here, in our hearts. So now we're asking, okay, we are the people who love God. What's going on out there? Our relationships with God are reset, they're whole, how do we live into new structures of power in our community? How do we serve as an alternative option in a world that is very imbalanced? What kind of structures are the church? If the church is called to be today, what the world is called to be ultimately, What do we look like as the people of God? And I think what's important to start this is to recognize that all political systems, all all structures are birthed out of an original story or an original impulse. That is quite literally the foundational building block of its order and its function. So what we wanna ask today is what is it? What is the world's original story for how they organize themselves? And what is the church's original story for how we organize ourselves? What gives life to our identity? We've uh, been trying to keep titles alliterative. So the first week was From Jeroboam to Jubilee was the title. And then last week was From Shame to Saint. And today we're going from Cain to Cross, from Cain to Cross. So we're gonna start from Genesis chapter four. We're gonna read that passage. You have your Bibles, you can pull it out, smartphones, or we're gonna put it on the screen Behind us, Um, Genesis chapter four. We're looking at two brothers, and this is what we read. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out into the field. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I wanna make the case that this story is the original story and the original impulse of all human societies and structures that I'm aware of. Cain and Abel are brothers. They both bring an offering to God. They perform an act of devotion to God. Abel's offering is regarded well. Cain's is not regarded well. We're not told why it is, but we're left to assume that the reason being is because Abel brings the best of his his flocks. He has sheep. He brings the best that he has. Cain, we're left to assume, just brings a offering. Like he does his religious duty, but it's not the best that he has to God. Cain gets angry because God seemingly uh, looks down on Abel's offering with favor, but not on Cain's. And God has a conversation with Cain. He goes, hey, what's wrong? If you do what it's right, you'll be fine. But be careful, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you. You can master it. Cain invites his brother Abel into the field and we're told he rises up against Abel and he kills him. Later on, God asks Came, where's your brother? To which we get our infamous line, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, I can hear your brother's blood crying out to me from the ground. I wanna make the case today that the structure of human societies and human politics is built off of violence. Violence. And you see that all throughout history, even mythologically, right? The people of Rome, How did Rome begin? Where was Rome founded? Rome was founded when two demigods, brothers, Romulus and Remus, were quarreling over who is going to be, um, who's going to be able to name the city after them. Romulus rises up and kills Remus, and he names the city Rome. When you look at political regime changes, usually, how do they start? They start with revolutions, revolutions, violence, or even self-defense, is the core of human politics, is what I think. Now, it can be deceptive for us because we think, whoa, 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 I'm not violent. I don't do violence against people. We're, we're modern, we're civilized, we're, we're a free country, which means equal. But what we have to realize, or we think we are, what we have to realize is that our order itself was founded upon an original violence. When you ask how was America birthed, probably we go back to 1776, the American Revolution. I'm grateful for um, Talal Assad, who's a Saudi Arabian anthropologist. And he's done a lot of work looking at modern Western um, civilizations and the violence in them. And this is what he says. He writes, violence is embedded in the very concept of liberty that lies at the heart of liberal doctrine. And just to be clear, when he says liberal doctrine, he doesn't mean political liberals set over and against political conservatives. He means the entire thing of which you can be a political liberal or a political conservative. He goes, violence is embedded in the very concept of liberty that lies at the heart of liberal doctrine. That concept presupposes that the morally independent individual AKA you, the morally independent individual, their natural right is to violent self-defense. And it's been yielded to the state and the state becomes the sole protector of individual liberties. Abstracting the right to kill from domestic politics, denying to any agents other than states the right to kill at home and abroad. The right to kill is the right to behave in violent ways toward other people, especially toward citizens of foreign states at war and toward the uncivilized, whose very existence is a threat to civilized order. In certain circumstances, killing others is necessary, so it seems, for the security it provides. What's he saying? He's saying, it's easy for me to think I'm not violent. I haven't killed anyone. What I don't realize is it's not that we don't kill anymore. It's that we've transferred our violence onto impersonal forces. We've transferred our right to kill to the state to protect us, whether it be the police force or fighting wars of those who threaten our freedoms. We've transferred our violence and to a free market to protect us. And economic violence is still a form of violence. Yeah, we don't have duels anymore when we're insulted. We don't go out into the public square and like, hey, let's settle this. Instead, our dueling happens uh, in another realm, in a digital space. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it when he describes his understanding of evil. He writes, I live in the managerial age, in a world of admin, the greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime. It's not a great phrase, sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result. But the greatest evil is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, minuted, in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth shaven cheeks, who do not need to raise their voice. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the offices of a thoroughly nasty business concern. What's he saying? He's saying perhaps you're not gonna see evil and violence and and physical violence anymore. Now the greatest evil, it's not done in fighting wars, that's just a manifestation. The greatest evil is found in spreadsheets, is what he's saying. It's kind of the same way that Caroline Knapp, in her book uh, detailing uh, her struggle with alcoholism, she talks about how the caricature drunk eases the conscience of the high-functioning alcoholic, right? And we can all sort of relate to that in our addictions because we all have them in something. We, we sort of look at someone who's the caricature drunk falling down in the street, disheveled, and we think, oh, I'm not that bad because I'm not that. That's true alcoholism, not me, this high-functioning alcoholic who still shows up to work on time. It's the same idea. We go, well, we're not violent because we're not the one shedding blood, not realizing that we've transferred our right to kill into impersonal forces, like the state, the market, technology, to administer justice. And to be sure, I'm not against these. I'm not. I'm just saying we need to recognize that that is where violence is done today. The original impulse that undergirds human societies is the right to kill, desired for violence. But when we ask the question, well, where did that come from? Where, where was that come from? And in the story when we read about Cain and Abel, what we recognize is that the original impulse to violence was due to a religious grievance. Notice, both brothers bring an offering to God. God gazes at Abel's, but not at Cain's. Cain gets angry and his face falls. So right now we can already see we have an issue with faces, right? When God's face doesn't look at Cain's the way Cain thought it should, Cain's face turns away from God. Cain's face looks away. But God's face is acceptance. God's face is love. God's face is everything our souls are designed to need. It's all found there. So when we turn away from the face of God, when we turn away from life itself, suddenly we become very aware of death. When Cain looks away from life, he becomes aware of mortality. And when you're aware of mortality, you start to think, well, what if only one person can live and the other person has to die? See, I think the politics of violence is a politics founded upon the fear of death. The original act of Cain's violence was generated not from greed, not from jealousy, not from anger. All those are but manifestations of the primary source. The original act of Cain's violence was that he had looked away from God and therefore he became suddenly aware of mortality. Only one person can be accepted by God, he thought. So it's gonna have to be him. Augustine, who was a fourth century African theologian, he points out that a politics that fears death, if you think that all of this, all it's leading toward is just death and then when you die, none of it matters. Well, if that's the case, Well, you're gonna seek out earthly glory, right? You're gonna seek out earthly glory to preserve your limited existence. He writes about Roman heroes. He says, Roman heroes belong to an earthly city and the aim set before them and all their acts of duty for her was the safety of their country and a kingdom not in heaven, but on earth, not in life eternal, but in the process where the dying pass away and are succeeded by those who will die in their turn. What else was there for them to love save glory? If death is all there is, what else is there to love but the glory, the memory of of your life on the lips of those who live after you? For through glory they desire to have a kind of life after death on the lips of those who praise them. Isn't that not what we fear, like what we desire for those of us who are afraid of death? We sort of commit violence or let it happen in an attempt at securing our memory in the minds and on the lips of those who live after us to secure earthly glory, even if it's just in the memories of our families and so live forever. So freedom often has been defined in the West as a right to life and to happiness. A right to live trying to avoid death and to be as happy as you can before you die. But if all individuals define freedom in such a way, well then obviously there's limited resources we can grasp after. Obviously, our our contrasting definitions of happiness are gonna butt into each other. Our contrasting definitions of what it means to secure glory are gonna butt into each other, to secure life. And then what happens when that occurs? Well, we natural self-defense, we kill in the name of preserving our existence. It's like the violence of musical chairs in a lot of ways. Truly, some of us are born faster, some of us are born stronger, the music gets going. Some of us just like when Justin Bieber comes on, we just have something come out of us, you know? Not me, you know? (laughs) But it's going, it's going, we're all, our freedom is a right to life and happiness, it avoids death, and then the music shuts off and you just gotta (laughs) dart for that chair. And some of us aren't gonna be able to make it. Now we're not killing people, we're just protecting ourselves. I wanna stay in the game. There's a $25 gift card to Amazon that's coming out of this, right? We're just protecting ourselves, but in so doing, others are cut off. Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? There's only limited chairs. Is it up to me? When we turn our face away from life, we fear death. And when we fear death, we kill to preserve our existence or we just allow others to die. This is the original story of all human politics. This is the structure of Cain that we live within. But what I wanna ask is, what would freedom look like for those of us who do not fear death? What would freedom look like for those who follow Jesus? What would a politics look like for a people who don't cling to their lives? What of those like Abel? He's another character in this story and he didn't turn his face away from God, but offered God his highest sacrifice. God gazed at him and he didn't turn his face away from his brother Cain either. What of Abel? Now, when you read this story and you consider Abel, one of the main things you notice is that Abel is unbelievably passive in this story, isn't he? Like, he doesn't do anything. He brings a sacrifice. He says no words, and he just goes where he's, to, he's told to go. Cain invites him out, he goes. Cain kills him, we don't hear anything. He's almost a non-existent character. He says no words, he initiates no actions other than his devotion to God. And what I wanna make the claim is that Jesus's politics, what he's inviting us into for those of us who are following him and say he has the words of life. He knows the secret to the world. If the new structures of Jubilee are built through him, then they're also built off a new impulse. I'm gonna read Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah written 800 years, give or take, before Jesus of Nazareth came into the world. This is what we read. the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah wrote these words 800 years before Jesus of Nazareth showed up. And what's interesting is when when the people who follow Jesus, his first disciples, when they considered the scope of his life, when they considered the arc of his journey and how it ended, Jesus died on a cross He was crucified as an enemy of the state, both the Jewish state and the Roman state. And in the description about his death, it is unbelievable how passive he is. He goes where he's told to go. Pilate in one, uh, Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of the the, uh, region of Judea, when the Jewish people are accusing Jesus of so many things, Jesus doesn't answer. And we're told Pilate is amazed because Jesus didn't answer back. What we see in the death of Jesus is a passive suffering servant who goes to death without cursing on his lips, who bears the fearful violence of others willingly. I'm gonna try to make this as clear as possible. But basically what I wanna say today is that if the structures of power, if the politics of Cain for humans is built off an original violence, then the structures of power for Jesus's followers, is built off an original death. That's our impulse that drives everything else. To say it another way, to be a Christian is not about what we'd fight for, but about what we'd die for. To be a follower of Jesus is not about what we would fight to preserve, but who and what we're willing to die for. Because the impulse at the core of what it means to be his people is a willingness not to fight back, but to receive at another's hands their violence and offer grace instead. God saves the world not how we save the world. He doesn't fight wars, he doesn't kill, no hostile takeover of corporations selling off shares. I don't know how it works exactly. He doesn't do that, instead he takes upon himself the fearful violence of the world that he created. As we read in Romans five, true love is that while we were his enemies, he died for us. God saves the world through his own death. And when he does that, when he takes the violence of the structures of Cain into himself, they snap and they can reset, which allows the people of Jubilee to build something new. Because notice, violence is only a threat when you fear death. But if you're not afraid of death anymore, then you don't have to be violent to preserve your existence. Which is why the spiritual jubilee is so important first. Which is why we said before it can happen out there, it has to happen in here. Because we have to know, we have to gaze upon Jesus on the cross, Jesus coming out of the tomb, and recognize that death doesn't have the final say anymore. Death isn't as powerful as it thought it was. Death isn't as powerful as the rest of the world thinks it is because we saw God come in the flesh. We saw God hanging there because of love. We saw God come out of the tomb. And he has said, death won't get the final word. So for those of us who do not fear death, what can the world do to us? It has nothing to threaten us with. Their violence is only because people fear death, but I don't fear death. I'm already dead, so to speak. I have died with Christ. My life is not my own. The life I live in the body, I live to the glory of God. You have nothing you can threaten me with. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We recognize this intuitively. Realities, small decisions grow, which is why we don't want to talk about the grand, but the small. You tell a lie, what happens? You have to tell another lie and another lie, and another lie, to preserve the sort of the core lie, and it builds out. You commit violence, what do you have to do? You have to commit another violence, and more violence, which is why the tyrants are the most paranoid, because they know what they've done to get there, and if they can do it, anyone can do it against them as well. The tyrants know fear that most people don't, but it works the other way, because if the original impulse of the people of God is not violence, but receiving death, receiving violence, well, that can also spread outward. The more we receive and the more we receive and bless and offer grace and offer forgiveness and offer a new way. Say, hey, you don't have to do that anymore. You can come out of darkness into light. You can come out, you can leave that fear behind and follow Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of death, which means we can live in a new reality. So the core of this new people are not those who who kill, but who sacrifice. And that love spreads outward. It destroys the myth of redemptive violence. We don't have to fight back. We don't have to protect ourselves. We have something new. God is asking us, where is your brother? And the world says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Where's your brother? I'm not killing him, but he's dying over there. Is that my problem? God asked Jesus, where's your brother? And he says, he's right out there killing me. I see him, I've come for him. I will not turn my face away from him. Which is what makes the church so unbelievably compelling when we see it and are living into its reality. Because God asked the church, where's your brother? And we're like, everywhere, (laughs) all over the place we have to go and tell and love and bind up and be loved. And even if they strike back in violence because they don't understand, they don't understand the gift we're giving them, we won't raise our hand to strike them because we're not afraid of death. See, we live among Cain structures, but we're not of Cain. We're of Abel, the new Abel. And I fear often that we're we aren't sure how to parse those two out. We don't know how to to challenge Cain's structures. And to challenge them is not to inflict violence on them. Otherwise we just live into Cain all over again. But it's to provide another way to live in the midst of them. The people of God are called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. To ask questions, to imagine other possibilities, to invite Cain once again to resist sin and enter Jubilee, to die with those who are being killed rather than benefit while they die, if that's what it requires. The politics of Jesus, what he's inviting us into is not competing for glory or self-preservation in this world. It's not holding on to the small patch of land we have because our new territory, our new kingdom is in the heart. It's not on the earth which makes us a threat to the world because there's nothing the world has that we want. There's nothing the world can threaten us with for we don't fear death. We're already dead and willing to die again for our faces are set on Jesus, whose face is set on God. We're already alive. Why does all this matter? Well, it matters because if the powerful are cool with us, we're not doing something right we should be a challenge to the structures we live among because Jubilee is happening and it's starting with us. It's happening through us. We've been welcomed to the table and so are you. So we don't have to kill anymore because death has been defeated. And how we engage these structures is so important. We can't just rip them down. Rather, we have to be compelling as an alternative community that people around us see something so new so winsome that they want it. What is it? They want to leave it behind and experience something new. That's what the Romans saw in the first century church. I don't know if you, if you ever have a chance to read a book on the first church, like, like the first and second century. They were so compelling. And not because they were loud, but just the way they lived. They, there, there was a practice, and, and, and this is, you know, an interesting test case for what's going on in our own society. But there was a practice in the first century called infant exposure, where basically if you had a baby you didn't want, you just left it on the trash heap. And the Christians, the first Christians, they were not condemning the Romans for doing that. They weren't yelling at them saying, stop. They simply took the babies in. They adopted the children. That's all. When when plagues would happen in towns, and everyone hated the Christians because they didn't participate like the other Romans. They, they didn't come to public festivals. They didn't worship other gods. They didn't do that. But they were such good citizens that they couldn't like pin stuff on them. So when plagues happened and everyone abandoned, literally there's, there's proof of this in the third century, there was a massive plague and people left the town. They fled for their lives because they feared death. The Christians stayed behind. They stayed in the plague. in the the town, riddled by plague, and they took care of the sick while they died, and many of them contracted plague and died as well. And interestingly, when when the plague passed and the Roman citizens came back to their town, the persecution against the Christians stopped after that. They weren't condemning, they were just living into a new alternative. They were living a new way of life, such that one Roman historian, Tertullian, who became a Christian, he talks about how when the Christians were put in the gladiatorial, uh, in the um, what's it called, Colosseum. There we go. I wanted to say the arena, the Colosseum, right? And it is an arena. Um, and and they're dying; they're being killed for sport. And it, he actually overheard someone say, "Look how they love one another, because they wouldn't curse the people who were killing them; they blessed." They blessed people. They would go to death without wishing violence on anyone else. And Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's what's so compelling about Jesus. You can't threaten him with anything, but he also doesn't have anything you want. He wants relationship, he wants love, and he's willing to die at your fearful hands to continue to offer you something new. And that's what makes us compelling. It's not that we need to shout for the world to change. We just need to be who we already are. And then we become something alternative. So if we're to be the people of Jubilee at Hope Brooklyn, we've got to learn to see, to listen, to name, to share meals, to ask questions about the structures we're in. To not respond with violence, but with love, with patience, with, with with intentionality because on the last day, it'll only be love that remains. I wanna invite the band back up. And before we close, uh, if you've been with us the last two Sundays, what we're doing during this series is at the end of each sermon, we're providing a couple thoughts and steps for us. Uh, A personal step, in your own life and relationship with God, a social step, our relationships with one another, and a structural step. And so today, here's what we're doing. The personal step for you to consider, we're gonna take a minute before we come to the Lord's table and do that, is where are you participating in structures of Cain that God might be asking you to reimagine? And I dare say, if we get deeply honest, because I did it this week and he spoke, we get deeply honest and sort of open our hearts and be like, okay, God, where's one aspect of my life? Maybe it's, maybe it's the way I treat the earth or my, the way I view food or clothes or finances or even the way I treat myself, the way I view myself. Where's something that you're inviting me to imagine a new way, to not commit violence or to not be a bystander of it, but to think differently of what it means to absorb it? That's the personal step. Socially, what well, we've been talking about, again, socially, like communally, we are partnering with an incredible organization called Safe Families for Children. And, and the, the impetus behind it is simple. Um, they connect families that are in crisis for all sorts of reasons with people like us. And they connect people, they connect us to the, to the limit and to the abilities that we have. So maybe you're in this room and you're like, I have no time but I have some resources. They'll connect you with people who are like new moms and need diapers or, or need uh, just a meal or something. Or maybe you're like, I don't have resources, but I have some time. They'll connect you with families where you can develop relationship, relationships. It's an incredible organization and we as Hope Brooklyn, we wanna step more into that. So what we're inviting each week is for, for you to consider just learning more about it. There's a sign up sheet uh, at the what's next table if you just wanna learn more. And I think we have like 26 people already signed up um, and our goal is to get to 50, so we'd love that. Structurally, what we wanna do, some of you may know this, but we have a justice team. And essentially, their job at Hope Brooklyn is to help us ask questions like, where's our brother? Because that's for us, those questions matter, God's asking us that. And they want us to consider, where's our brother? Where's our sister? Where areas in the neighborhoods where we're living um, that are overlooked or that are unseen or that are dying and we can come in and take care and be taken care of. And so in order to do that, what we want to do is understand more about our community and who we have among us, what industries we're involved in, where you guys are already volunteering, um, what skills and resources you have. So do we have the link for the survey? No link for the survey. All right. If you are on the newsletter already, you received an email. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take the next two minutes, it's all it takes is 90 seconds. We've, we've done it a couple times. If you receive that email, go ahead and pull it out. And we're gonna play a little music underneath so that uh, you can enjoy it and take that survey. If you did not receive the email, uh, that, that uh, uh, connection card that you have, fill that out, drop it off, and you will receive the email for next week. And just ask a couple questions of what you're involved in and how we as Hope Brooklyn can leverage where we already are and what passions we already have for the communities we live among. So go ahead and take that and I'll be right back in 90 seconds. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, Visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.